moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. Your co-host, Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB, your executive reading and research coach. Today, we have a fantastic episode in store with some phenomenal learnings. And before we introduce our featured guest, uh, I want to highlight some of the key things that we're going to take away from this conversation. We're going to learn why it's important to pay attention to the things that bring you joy because chasing those things are going to lead to success. We're going to learn why problem obsession is critical to startup success. We're going to learn about what is the impact economy. And then lastly, we're also going to learn why we shouldn't ignore the NPO community and NPO leaders of the world. So that is a packed agenda that we have. And to lead us through the conversation, we have Mitch Stein. Hello, Mitch. Hey, Dr. Jim. Thanks for having me. And LB, I think it's a fitting episode to be talking about clean shaves because the audience that's listening might not know. I've been clean shaven since I was 23. So early baldy here. We're so excited to have you on and we're going to cover a ton of stuff as I alluded to in the beginning. Give us a little bit of your current role and what you're doing. So my name is Mitch Stein, obviously. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Pond. It's an ecosystem built for nonprofits to thrive. We have a, what I like to call a network marketplace. We bring together a community of nonprofit leaders and the vendors that provide the tools and services that power their mission and find creative ways to connect them when they need them, help inform them what they need, what could work, what others are using to make the best decisions and ultimately save a lot of money on the things they're investing in. So really disrupting and changing that cycle of investment in long-term investment in nonprofit organizations. There's a lot that's packed in there and we're gonna deconstruct that in a little while, but I think one of the things that's important to note, this is a show about innovators and disruptors and you're taking it to a whole nother level being a tech startup leader that's servicing the nonprofit sector. I get the whole tech startup leader component of it, but I've never up until you and I connected heard of a tech startup that services the not-for-profit sector. What brought you to that sort of community that you wanted to serve? I guess it makes sense to start with a little background on me besides my current role, but I was born and raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana. My Family's all long-term from Indiana. For whatever reason, when I was a kid, I had these two somewhat unique qualities where I was like really aggressive about helping other people to the point that maybe pushed people the wrong way. I was like hosting Krispy Kreme fundraisers at my middle school in the sixth grade and like making all my friends and their parents buy donuts, put on a brand new school carnival to help the tsunami victims. My mom had a friend who passed away from leukemia really suddenly. 
And I made these custom bandanas for her and we sold them and were able to donate a thousand, like one of those big checks, like on the news. So that was me in the seventh grade. So I, I was always really passionate about helping others and it fit well into my broader ethos of like always doing the most. I grew up feeling like for whatever reason, maybe it's insecurity or what, but I was the consummate overachiever. And I think that really contributed. I'm, gonna, I'm interested in business because that's the overachieving thing to do. And I'm going to go to the best business school in the country. So guess what, mom and dad, I'm going to the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Business. And like first month of my freshman year of high school, marched into my college counselor's office and was like, all right, I'm going to Penn. And he's like, okay, what are your backups? Because that's not very likely. And I was like, are you kidding me? (laughs) That's the first thing you're going to tell me is to rethink a big dream. And so stuff like that has always really driven me to that's, I guess every good founder has a chip on their shoulder. Like I just accumulated those. I ended up going to Penn. I ended up walking on the rowing team there, ended up rowing in the varsity team there till I graduated. I ended up getting a job at Goldman Sachs as an investment banker my junior summer and turned that into a full-time career. And I worked there for seven years. At one point, got a role, a special rotation where I was directly supporting the CEO who was Lloyd Blankfein at the time. And at age 26, 27, was managing his client strategy globally across businesses. So I think on paper was hitting those marks, right? I was doing the most and worked really freaking hard. I don't want to make it sound like that was all just happening by accident, taking a ton of privilege and a lot of hard work to make those things happen because they seemed like the highest achievement. And while all that was happening outside of work, I got really involved with a nonprofit in New York City called the LGBT Center. We had lost my mom's twin brother to AIDS when I was very young. And there was a ton of stigma around that. And we had never really grappled with it or handled it well as a broader family. And I heard about this organization and a bike ride they did from Boston to New York. And my dad and I joined together in 2016, not thinking much of it. And it turned into this like massive grassroots effort of a thousand donors, just the two of us and raising like over a hundred thousand dollars a year for the center. And that lit a match in me like I never experienced before. Like I always felt like I was driving for a thing because it was a thing to achieve. And I finally felt like I was working on something that was a passion, even though it had nothing to do with my job and nothing that like people maybe traditionally ascribe like a ton of high achieving value to that I was like raising money for a bike ride. It's like, cool. But this, that fundamentally changed me. And I started to see skills that I had that I didn't necessarily know about because I was building financial models and all of a sudden I'm telling stories about my uncle and I'm starting a weekly email campaign about our bike training and what I'm learning about other people on the ride and the realities of HIV stigma today and the realities of HIV rates in marginalized communities and sharing that with people and that storytelling, that marketing ability, that relationship building was where my passion was and I was gravitating to it so much. I was like this is where I need to go. I don't know exactly what that means, but that's what shifted to me. And sorry, it was a long-winded answer to your question, but I think that buildup of, I always knew there was something more I could be doing. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then I knew I love working in and around causal activities. I don't know what that means for where I'm going to go or what I'm going to do, but it has to be around this. That is a fantastic answer. And there's a lot of areas that I'm curious about. There's two things that I'm really wondering what's underneath that drove you. So 
talk through this overarching need to serve. Like even when you were a kid, you were seeking out these additional opportunities where you could help, from my perspective, make others feel better. And then there was this other component where it's this drive to excel. I'm curious to understand where that came from. I think on the service point, a lot of that comes from the way I was raised. We didn't necessarily talk about it in these ways at the time. We didn't really have the language, but the amount of privilege I grew up with and like the obligation to pay that forward. And on so many levels, I had loving parents. I was a white person. I got like great education, these things that I wouldn't have had the language to describe at the time, but I always felt this pressure. Like you've been given so much, not only do you need to do a lot, you need to do a lot for others. And I think a lot of that stemmed from both my parents grew up really very poor, effectively in poverty. My dad's dad was a serial entrepreneur today, but a lot of failed businesses living above the company, the family store in small town, Indiana. My mom's dad was a minister. They moved every year or two her entire childhood. And so just neither of them ever had anything. And my dad became a doctor and really, quote unquote, made something of himself and was able to provide for a family in it beyond his wildest dreams from what he grew up with. And I think it reminded me of a lot of friends that I have that are first generation immigrants to the United States, that kind of like pressure from their parents that's not necessarily spoken, sometimes spoken. For me, it was more like, wow, I know how hard my parents have worked and what they've done for us as a family, and I need to pay that forward. I think the push to excel, though, quite differently, like that never, I never felt pressure at all from my parents to do more. Like they want to make sure I got my homework done, like traditional parent things. But it was never like, why did you get a B on your report card? Like you need to do straight A's. That was entirely self-inflicted. And I think a lot of that was just from knowing at a very young age that I was gay and being in a very conservative part of the country and in a pretty religious family where for me, there was a part of me that was wrong and that there was that was never going to change. And so the best I could do is excel in everything else in my life because there was this one thing that I couldn't fix that was wrong with me. And I think that muscle of like your gut reaction is to overachieve, even though I came out when I was 22, that doesn't go away. Thanks for sharing that. I'm thinking through it and I made made a sideways glance when you phrased it in the way that you did, where you're saying, hey, I knew internally that there's this part of me that was air quotes wrong or felt wrong. Man, that is a really interesting mindset. If I know that there are people that are going through that journey now, and I know this isn't the main part of the story that we want to tell, but if there are others that are listening that are going through that same experience and are feeling like they're wrong or they're broken, how would you speed up their efforts to get out of that mindset? What advice would you have to share if somebody is stuck in that mindset? It's a really good question. It's also so personal and individual to everybody. And I would say it's even more being in the closet about something is not restricted to your sexuality. People struggle with mental illness or health problems that they don't want to disclose or family history, incarceration history, like there's all kinds of shame people live with for different reasons. And so it's hard to give blanket advice from a place of privilege when for a lot of people that it's not about speed, it's about finding safety. And so I guess that would be my advice more than hurry up and come out already. Because it's just so dependent on 
on everyone's situation is to prioritize your own safety because that's what's going to make it possible for you to come out. So if there's something that you're struggling with along those lines and you're surrounded by people that you don't feel or in situations that you don't feel safe about, you don't have to struggle in that setting. You there are there is opportunity to find safer spaces. It's harder for some people than others. Not everyone has that kind of mobility, but I would just say first and foremost, prioritize your own safety because a lot of the damage that comes from this, especially in young kids, is just the self-talk, the negative self-talk. And we talk to ourselves like you would never talk to your worst enemy. And I think as a starting point, starting to talk to yourself like you would a really close friend and monitoring your own mental self-talk and be like, wait, like call your inner self out. Wait, like, why would you never say that to your best friend? Like, why are you saying that to yourself? And I think creating some of that safety for yourself will help you recognize the importance of that external safety. And that's what's going to get you into the right place and the right time to start coming out and leading a happier life. I think that's great advice. Seek out and find your safety first. And we've had multiple people dealing with all sorts of different stuff talk about, you got to find your people, you got to find your community, how, whatever that looks like. So it's consistent with that sort of advice that we've had through our various episodes. If I could just add, I think that the other part too, that I think is interesting is as I was listening to you, as you, it's a process that we go through. And I think that you make a great example of talking about mental health. And so I think it was right after George Floyd and I was going through a lot, having been stopped by the police and having all kinds of like legit paranoia that I would say probably isn't paranoia because I've been stopped enough times to feel comfortable in saying that I'm probably going to get stopped again. Right? It's happened enough times, but which is not really the point is that what I appreciate about what you're saying is that I thought that not talking to people about it was the right thing to do when it was really eating me up inside and how much power I gained from saying, you know, this is a part of me, right? Like I didn't necessarily plan for it, but this is, how, this is now my makeup. And I, I think now though, that my level of compassion and more importantly, empathy for other people and being able to allow them to be who they are is part of that, is part of that journey. So it, there's always, at least I try to think this way, and it sounds like that you as well, because this is like this amazing catalyst for all these amazing things that you've done thus far, which we haven't heard about yet. But but I think it's important to, it also builds that that empathy, right? I think that's a, that's something that's very humbling is that if we identify, and Jim and I talk about this a lot, about we start with humanity. If we could just start there, every, everything's kind of gravy, it's just getting to the point of, to your point about that self-talk, and I, I don't remember the stat, but it's something like thousands of negative thoughts that we beat ourselves up over on a regular basis. Mitch, your point about the negative self-talk, it brought me back to a recent speaker that I was listening to. And the point that she made during her presentation is that your brain actually can't discern between reality and a dream state. So when you frame any statement about yourself positively or negatively, your brain believes it. So if you're saying, mm -hmm. hey, I have weaknesses or I suck at this, then it conditions your movement around the world in that frame. So that negative self-talk component, and it's interesting, I saw that presentation probably like two weeks ago. And then I saw this other thing that popped up in my in my feed where we often go through life and 
we think, oh, this happened. So it's absolutely terrible. But that one terrible thing is offset by 15 or 20 other positive things that in the moment are happening around you. And one of the things that the speaker was saying was you have to reorient yourself to be sort of in the mode of gratitude. So for every time that you feel this one thing is awful, you can point out 10 things as an exercise to get you Mm -hmm. in the right mindset so that you're not walking through negatively. I want to circle back to something that you mentioned that you described. So from an outsider's perspective, from your college experience, you're in Goldman Sachs, you're on this trajectory. Everybody else would be thinking, holy cow, this guy's going to rule the world. And you still might. And you still might. That wasn't fulfilling you. It was that what actually ended up fulfilling you was this uh, this experience with the AIDS not-for-profit that you joined. So was there an actual trigger that flipped into the nonprofit world or was this always, hey, I'm going through the motions and I look like I'm, I'm being who I'm supposed to be in terms of what the world expects, but I'm just not happy. What was your mindset? Like with any of those, like you described it as an arc, an arc has like thousands of tiny little turns in it. So it's hard to pinpoint, like there are definitely some more memorable moments. I think what you described of recognizing a greater passion area But I don't think a passion for something is enough to necessarily go change what you're doing. I think a few things needed to be true. I needed to have the confidence in myself that I actually could go start and lead something. And I also needed to identify a problem worth solving to disrupt this life that I had and career that I had to pour into something. Because I knew for me, dabbling was not an option. I am an all or nothing, very extreme person. And so I knew I would be all have to be all in. And I think on the first point about feeling confident to go do this, because for those who don't know, an investment banker, and I now have a better sense of this, that skill set and experience has almost nothing to do with starting a tech company. So I covered tech companies, I worked with software and internet businesses. But I was not like a product manager at Facebook or something where you have a lot more transferable skills to building a new tech product. But when I was doing my exit interview from Lloyd's team and moving on to the tech banking team, he asked me what my biggest takeaway was from the experience. And I looked at him and said, the biggest thing is that I now know I could do your job. And he kind of laughed at me, but like nodded and got it because I didn't mean it wasn't an arrogant thing to say, move over, I'm stepping in. It was to say, you can't be what you can't see. And it seems unattainable, these leaders that any one of us might look up to when they're just hitting the high notes on an interview on TV or having all these amazing write-ups because everyone wants to hear amazing stories about people. So they just look like incredible, perfect. What do you do? And the reality is when you see them behind the scenes, they work hard and they're smart and they were committed to something. And I knew that I could do all those things too. It might not be at this company, but someday I could also be a leader like you. Tune in next time for part two of the Innovators and Disruptors episode of Cascading Leadership featuring Mitt Stein, CEO of Pond. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. 
Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.